When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast. What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another wild and exciting week of the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. Derek here with you again. I'm excited. Going to head into week two of Ask Derek. Before we get into things, I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to everyone that's listening. Our podcast just continues to grow and the TLP community continues to grow. It's really exciting for us because we really enjoy what we do. Ultimately, we're helping others to accomplish their goals and have a more fulfilling life. And honestly, for us, it really doesn't get any better than that. I wanted to read a quick review we got on iTunes. This was left by Vic and Jess. They said, so glad we found this. My wife and I have been listening to these guys religiously. It's so refreshing to hear these guys speak so positively about practicing and all things related. Thank you, Vic and Jess. We enjoy speaking positively, and it's not just because we're trying to be positive and spread positivity, but it's because we are positive. There's so much potential out there in dentistry, and there's so much potential inside all of us, and the more that we can share that, the happier we are, and the more success that we see in others. So thank you for that. We do work really hard to create good quality content in this podcast. And the least you can do, you can help us out by leaving a review on iTunes. Or you can always check out our services at tlpcoaching.com. Or as always, you can send us an email at Derek, D-E-R-E-K, or Steve or Justin at thelifestylepractice.com. All right, so let's jump into things. I posted a, a few weeks ago on Facebook just asking, you know, if you have questions and things you want to hear about more, post them and I will be happy to share whatever I can through a few episodes. Initially, I was thinking it would just be one episode, but I got a lot of questions on a lot of different things. So I'm kind of breaking things down into categories. Last week, I talked a little bit about expanding yourself clinically. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit more clinically as far as, well, I'll get into it. These two episodes will be the only episodes that are really clinical and clinically focused. And like I shared last time, we don't really talk much about clinical aspects and approaches on the podcast because in our coaching, we don't claim to be clinical experts. And so a lot of that is left up to the dentist. A lot of it comes down to coaching as far as growing your leadership abilities and looking at the systems in your practice. And that's what we talk about a lot. So it's kind of fun to dive into this a little bit. So I got a few different questions as far as clinically, but kind of the overarching question of this episode is, do you have any clinical tips you can share to help increase productivity? So like I shared before, I'm not a clinical guru. You know, I'm not someone that you should be looking at as far as trying to be the best clinical dentist. But at the same time, in my opinion, I, you know, I've built a relatively successful practice. 
I only work three days a week. And so we've got to cram a lot of dentistry in those three days to reach the numbers and the success that I want to see. And it's important for me to not be redoing a lot of work. So clinical outcomes are very important as far as building patients' trust and it's just the right thing to do. So I do have a a little bit of credibility. I'm sure that there's a lot of different avenues and places you could look to, but I'm going to go ahead and share what I can today as far as helping with whatever questions I can answer. So in general, as far as when we're looking to increase productivity, we have to try and think of a few things. Can we do things faster? Can we decrease our expenses for the things that we are doing? And it goes without saying that we want to do acceptable dentistry. We want to have good clinical outcomes that are going to last and stand the test of time. So I'm going to go through a bunch of different specific things. The first one is what are some good techniques for quadrant dentistry? I think that this has a lot to do with phasing treatment and treatment planning and everything in the beginning. You have to decide on an overall treatment plan with the patient before you can get started. But if you can start with a blueprint of where you're going, then you can set appointments in the most efficient way possible. So I'll often see a patient, get them numb on one side for the hygienist to do uh, scaling and root planing. Then I'll see them right after to do any fillings or crowns or extractions that they need on the right side. Obviously, every case is different and, and some of that might depend. But in that sequence, you know, if I'm doing fillings, crowns, extractions, generally the key is for me doing the fillings first, then doing the crown preps. I'm still doing PVS impressions. So we impress, temporize. And then the extractions are last so that the patients can bite down on gauze and walk out the door. As far as quadrant dentistry, isolation is a must. Whatever works in your hands, we've used dry shield when doing a lot of fillings or restorative, and that makes things nice. I think you can get a a starter kit from them that's relatively affordable. They're autoclavable. As far as speed in doing these things, I don't think that speed is the most important factor. Often it goes back to what I said and what we talk about a lot, diagnosis, case acceptance, and scheduling that is the most important. When your schedule is is maxed out and you're getting booked out, then speed will definitely start to play a role in finding where you're going to plateau. And you're going to have to push through that and find your limit. But until you get to that point, speed is not going to limit you too much. So start out focusing on getting good outcomes. Think through how you can schedule things in the most efficient way. And then over time, you'll get faster and figure out what are some of those things. A couple simple things as far as just specifics of fillings and crowns. I use Greater Curve Toffelmeyer bands, and I've been very happy with them. The the seller that I bought the practice from used them. I wasn't familiar with them, but I really enjoy them. Essentially, they have a little bit of curvature to them to help them to keep a tight contact with the tooth around the tooth, but then to stretch really well to get contact with the adjacent tooth. And what you actually do is you cut a little window in the Toffelmeyer where you want the contact to be. I was nervous about this when I started. I thought, man, isn't this going to be messy and kind of get stuck and stuff like that? So far, I've never had any kind of an issue. 
So no, I don't use a sectional matrix system. No, my contours aren't perfect on the x-rays, but the fillings work well, patients are happy, and they last a long time. The other thing that I have changed a little bit, and when I talked last time about looking at your downfalls and things, I can't remember if I shared this, but one thing that I would find, which I'm sure many of you have experienced this as well, is on class twos, not getting that a real great seal on the gingival seat. And I've, in the last year or two, I've started doing the snowplow technique, which is essentially when you get to the point, put down your bond, cure, and I just put a little bit of flowable and then packable composite on top of that and do that layer, pack those together. The flowable just helps to kind of fill in any of those gaps. And because a lot of times what I was seeing is that as much as I would try and condense, there is still voids in some of those areas. Since I've been doing this, I've seen better results on the x-rays and from what I can tell clinically when I check things after. So that's been nice. For crowns, like I said, I'm still a little bit old school when it comes to this. And I did have one person that asked a question, which I'll talk about a little bit about this later as far as production. But in my practice, I see a lot of patients with a broken tooth that come in and we're doing a crown. So I do a lot of working in same-day treatment for crowns. And I really enjoy it. It's a very predictable procedure for me. But essentially, pre-op, triple tray, impression to make the temp, and then use something like integrity to make the temp after the prep is done, obviously. I do a knife edge margin on most posterior teeth, and I'll do either PFM or zirconia. It makes it simple. The margins are always sealed well on the x-ray, and it's efficient. Anterior teeth, I will generally do a heavy chamfer. I generally only pack cord on anterior preps. Posterior, I just use Viscostat, rinse, dry, and then impress with light body around the prep, heavy body, and the triple tray. One thing that is really great, which if you're not using these, hopefully everyone is, but if you're not, you should be using a reduction burr. If you just Google top hat occlusal reduction burr, for crown preps, you're going to see some of the different ones that are out there. Having one that's just right around two millimeters is really great. So that's always my very first step when I start prepping the tooth is just to lop off the top with that burr. And that saves me a lot of time. And most of the time, I don't have to adjust the occlusal of the prep when I go to check the reduction. Next, I'll talk a little bit about extractions. I love extractions. The main thing here for me is that you have to be pretty comfortable with a surgical handpiece. If you are, it makes extractions for the most part pretty simple. And then if you end up in some trouble and you can get yourself out, then that's great. And you don't have to sweat. I talked a little bit about methods and strategies as far as trying to kind of expand your envelope as far as what you're comfortable doing last time. So if you didn't hear that, then you could go back and listen to that. If you can offer bone graft at the same time, this is a great practice builder, great production, immediate extra income, and it helps the patient look forward to an implant. You can get something simple like a bone putty that you just pack in there or with some of the ones where you have a defect in the bone, you can do something a little bit more complex with bone and then a membrane and sutures patient has to return after a few weeks to remove it, but that's how I started and that's how I've been doing it for the most part since then. 
A couple good ways to grow clinically as far as extractions. Go on Dentaltown and look at Tommy Murph's threads, I Would Like to Extract Teeth. There's a lot of really good things on there, and he sells a book that's, I don't think it's very expensive. I bought it a few years ago, and I still refer to it. There's just a lot of really very practical information in it that's pretty helpful. Another thing, I love Spade Proximators by Carl Schumacher. I use them to luxate, and they are great for removing teeth and getting into some of those spaces that are difficult with an elevator. And so my setup is I always am going to have an elevator and then probably a spade proximator. Oh, and then a periosteal. But besides that, it's going to defer a little bit, but pretty much always I'm going to have those few instruments probably. I think the other thing that's helped me is setting up patients for a good experience, I always tell them that they have the option of seeing the oral surgeon if they'd like to be fully sedated. Like I said last time, I don't do IV sedation. We do local and nitrous. So I tell them, you know, if you get really nervous about stuff like this, you always have the the option to see the oral surgeon and be put to sleep and just not have to really worry about it. I do cases like this all the time. We use local. So you'll be numb and we can put you on the gas. You're not going to be asleep, but you know you should be comfortable and let them make the decision. And a lot of times those nervous patients are going to weed themselves out and that's a good way of doing it. The other thing is setting up expectations as far as how the procedure is going to go. I'm always going to talk through things as if it's going to be more difficult than I hope that it is. So I, I tell them, this tooth has a good chance of breaking and we're probably going to have to drill and it, probably gonna, it's, it might take a little bit of work to get it out. And then if things go better, which hopefully they do, and usually they do because of this method, then the patient sees it as a great outcome and they're very happy about it. And then if stuff does happen, you know, they're not caught off guard. They're not alarmed when they hear the drill and stuff like that because you talked through it beforehand. I do the same thing with pain as far as expectations. I usually try and overplay their pain a little bit because it can be difficult to predict how much pain a patient is going to have. Obviously, a very simple extraction is going to have less and a more surgical is going to have more pain. But, you know, I think we've probably all had experiences where patients were in a lot of pain and we didn't expect them to be. So paint the picture worse than what you expect it to be like so that they're prepared for the worst. And then most of the time I check on those patients later and they say, oh, yeah, it wasn't bad at all. And it's because of that conversation beforehand. The other thing that goes along with this is trying to help your assistants to become as good with their eyes clinically as possible, the more that they can talk through with the patient and save you from some of these conversations can be helpful, especially in a very busy practice. I'm going to jump next to talking a little bit about root canals. I enjoy root canals for the most part. I do try and avoid, for the most part, doing endo through crowns, and I don't do upper second molars, but I don't do any retreats as well. Vital cases are generally easier to do than necrotic, in my opinion, because you can kind of follow the blood supply and find the canals. That makes things a little bit easier. Also, vital cases do tend to have a little bit higher success rate when you look at success rates in the studies. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I use ProTaper 
And I was trained on wave one in dental school, and I like that system. And for the most part, I, I usually recommend that docs use wave one if they have a choice. The seller that I bought the practice from was using ProTaper, and I have learned it, and I've just stuck with it. I've learned with it, and I see good outcomes. I like the system, and so I've, I've stuck with it. A few things that have been helpful for me. 99% of the time, I do the crown the same day as the root canal. So when I treatment plan something, I just treatment plan root canal buildup and crown, and I tell them the cost. So it's not very often that I do a root canal without doing the crown, unless it's an anterior tooth that I don't think needs it. Or, you know, sometimes if the patient really wants to save the tooth, but doesn't have the financial resources, then I'll give that option. But I've seen too many times where a root canal is done without a crown, something happens, patient ends up with decay or pulling the tooth later. And so that's just what I do. So because I do the crown the same day as the root canal for the most part, I'll get the pre-op impression and I will start by doing the occlusal reduction. And I don't think this is done often enough by dentists. If you're doing a root canal and you're going to do a crown the same day or even soon after that the patient you know, has accepted that they're doing a crown, just tell them that this is part of the process. Take off the top and the occlusal reduction helps you to access the tooth a little bit easier. Helps you to see a little bit easier. Gives you a little bit better. It's only a couple millimeters, but it does make a pretty big difference. So like I said, even if I have a patient that's going to wait on the crown, I'll usually tell them that I'm going to shorten the tooth a little bit to reduce the risk of the fracture and that this is what we would do anyway in this case of getting a crown. I don't do full reduction in that case, but still some. One thing is if I'm ever uneasy about a case as far as difficulty, for the most part, I just refer to those cases. If it happens to be a day where, you know, maybe I have a pocket of time after that patient or something where I really have the time to do the case, I may talk to the patient and say, this is a difficult case. This is one that I may a lot of times end up referring to the specialist. If you'd rather just go to the specialist, that's totally fine. Today, I have some time and you know I've done several cases like this. It's very possible that when I get in there and open things up, if it becomes challenging, I'm not going to keep drilling and mess things up. I'm just going to close things up and tell you to go see the endodontist. If that's okay and you want me to do that, that's fine. If you want to just go straight to the endodontist, that's fine as well. And that's, again, a good way of weeding out patients that might be a little bit more picky. The person that just wants a good outcome and just to do things once and might complain about having to be referred partway through the procedure, they're going to weed themselves out through that process. And the easy ones, if you end up getting it done, they're going to be happy. So that's a good kind of middle of the road way to go through things. A couple of different things to wrap up. One is I'm going to talk a little bit about injections. And then last, I'll talk just a little bit about pedo. First is injections. And, you know, obviously everybody has their own methods. The main thing I guess I would focus on here is what do we do in a situation where it's difficult to get someone numb, which is usually a lower molar. In my experience, try to use nerve blocks over local infiltration. I usually do a carp of septo, a carp of lido, so both of those to do the IAN block. Then I will do one septo local infiltration in the buccal vestibule. Most of the time, that's going to get the patient numb. I'm going to always check 
first with cold. Patients would much rather have some cold cotton and feel cold on their tooth than to feel the vibration and the drilling and to experience the pain. So this is something that patients appreciate. So if you can test it with cold before drilling, it only takes a few more seconds and it's very helpful. And it prevents the jack-in-the-box situation where you know, you're drilling and the patient jumps and you jump and you start sweating. Maybe nobody else does that, but it's just me. Anyway, if I do that, the patient's still not numb, I'll get out the ligaject and go all around the PDL with Lido. And then I'm also going to do a Galgates injection with either either Lido or Septo. And I'm going to give that a few minutes. Well, actually, usually I, because I did the ligaject around the PDL, I'll test it immediately. And then I've got the Galgates setting in as a backup. And if they can still fill that test when I do it, I'll just give it some time. If the tooth is opened up and they start to fill it, I will do intrapulpal. And basically that means get a 30 gauge needle down as far as you can go. It doesn't matter what type of anesthetic you use. Basically, you just need a lot of pressure. Um, if after going through all of that, they're still not numb, you can ask the patient if they want to be referred or reappoint. But in the last five years, it's probably only happened maybe twice, two or three times. So going through those and working on making sure that you're getting your anatomy and everything is really good. As far as injections and trying to make them painless, where I learned the best as far as doing painless injections, actually segue into our next topic is pedo. Go on Dentaltown and watch Josh Wren's CE for pedo. He, I think he has two courses. It might be three now. They're each 36 bucks and they're so valuable. But he goes in there and he talks about how to give painless injections to kids. And I learned more from that as far as giving painless injections to adults than anything else. So I use a, a compounded topical get the vestibule or wherever your injection, get it really dry before you put the topical on, let it sit for about a minute. And then the main thing when you're giving the injection is if you can think of not pushing the needle into the tissue, but pulling the tissue into the needle, it makes a big difference as far as how much the patient can feel. So for example, if I'm just doing local in the upper vestibule, I'm going to raise the lip up, insert the needle, and then pull the lip down into the needle instead of just pushing the needle up into the lip. And then just trying to go relatively slowly. Another thing that I've heard a lot of people do is have anesthetic warmer that's going to have your anesthetic closer to body temperature and make that less painful. I haven't done that, but I think that that's probably good advice as well. As far as actual pedo advice, I think the biggest thing that you can do is put a TV on the ceiling. If you don't have that and don't have the budget to do that, I've seen the, the molar media mount and just put tablets up there. And that, that can be a good thing. I don't have overhead lights in my practice, so that would be tough to do as well because the molar media mount does mount to the overhead light. But in general, like I said, I, you know, I could go into a lot more detail on pedo, but just go watch Josh Ren's CE course and that's probably the best thing that you could do. So to wrap up these things today, a lot of these were very specific things that you can do, but don't forget the big picture. The big picture is that the goal when you're in your practice is to make your time as productive as possible. We don't want you being in the practice, sitting on your computer, 
checking Facebook and writing emails and, you know, doing stuff like that in between the patients. The goal is to be as productive as possible. And on the other hand, there's plenty of dogs out there that are, that are booked out, you know, for several weeks. And I don't like that scenario either. There is almost always fluff in the schedule. And we discussed that in an episode last year when everybody went back to work after the COVID shutdown. Everybody worked for the most part. I mean, my clients and a lot of the dentists that I talked to worked the same amount of hours and days as before, but their production was through the roof. And what that means is that they're probably not scheduling and doing dentistry in the most productive and efficient way possible. Because then when they had increased demand, they were able to do a lot more. So keep that in mind when you're going through these things. Remember that ultimately your goal is just to be the best that you can in your practice and to become productive, efficient, and to get the best results for your patients. So I hope that if you listen to this, that there's, you know, maybe something that you could get out of it to take back to your practice and implement it. Maybe there's a few, but I appreciate you guys listening. Next week, we will keep going. I've got several more categories of things that I'll go into. And if you still have something that you'd like to ask about, go back to the Facebook page and go ahead and and see the, the questions that are posted there and post it or send me an email or a message again. So have a great week, guys, and we will talk to you later. Break a sweat, cause I live my life like it's all I got.